it's for sure it's perseverance. So you need to keep pushing, you need to keep pushing with investors. You're going to have a lot of no's, a lot of people saying, no, I don't understand. No, I don't, I don't trust. No, you're too young. No, you're not expert. No, you don't come from the music business. No, I don't like whatever. You need to keep pushing. You need to keep asking. You need to keep. And then sooner or later, you will find open doors. Yeah, other lessons, I think it's be an, an expert. You need to keep being informed. You need to keep learning. You need to keep spending time in what you do. Be the first one to arrive in the office. Be the last one to leave. Love what you do. Don't go and burn out because, you, I mean, if you love what you do, you probably not, will not go and burn out, but you need to spend a lot of time in this to learn, to be the expert in order to maybe some criticism that you receive from some investors or maybe during a pitch, you need to be able to answer any question. Watching television, I mean, you, you go to a talk show, you go to Bloomberg TV, you know, as a fund manager or something, you see them answering any question. Welcome, I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspirations and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode where we talked to my wife, Susan Cattaneo, about what it's like to be a creative entrepreneur and the lessons that leaders can learn from people who operate in a creative business. We also talked about what it's like to work with your spouse. Today's guest is Marcia Skena, founder and CEO of Anote Music. As you can guess from the name of the company, we're still in the music industry, but we're looking at a very different angle. You may have heard of the recent big sales of music catalogs by legacy artists like Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, and the enormous amount of money that they commanded. Marcia's company is a game changer in that market. Enote Music is a marketplace or platform that allows individual music fans, investors, to invest in and earn royalties from current catalogs owned by record labels, publishers, and artists. It's a great concept because it expands access to funding to a much broader group of artists. And at the same time, it gives access to this market to a broader pool of investors. It's also a great application of blockchain, which Anote uses to support a portion of its process, as you will hear in the conversation. March's story is fascinating because he's a relatively young founder and he's very candid and open about the pros and cons of starting a company early in your career. So there are plenty of great lessons here. Enjoy. Marzio, welcome. Why don't we start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and telling us a little bit of your story? Sure, sure. Hi, Dino. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be here with you. And sure, my name is Marzio Schena. I am uh, one of the three co-founders of Anode Music, which is a company based in the, in the tiny country of Luxembourg in the center of Europe providing the first uh, European marketplace for music royalties. So we kind of bridge music and finance by opening up the market of music royalties to everyday investors and retail investors and companies. My story is uh, a story of finance, 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 360 degrees, until I got bored of it and I understood that we could apply, you know, like uh, the, the skill set and what we, we learned in the financial sector to the music industry. And uh, maybe we maybe we can also explore a little bit this kind of uh, duality. Yes, we will definitely explore the duality towards the end. So the first thing that fascinated me when we were introduced is the fact you're a very young founder. 
compared to other founders. And what made you decide to start your own company so early in your career? Oh, okay. <laughs> the why is always very hard to find. There is never a why, you know, like, it's like, you know, that you have, you have an idea, you start at the beginning, it's, uh, you, you don't want to do it. You know, at the beginning, you try to do everything in stealth mode. You try to, to see if uh, actually the idea that you're having, it could actually make sense. You try to gather people to speak about it, find founders, co-founders, until the moment in which it becomes too kind of big and you're too enthusiastic about it to, and then that's the moment in which you leave your job, you leave the job, which is kind of a, you know, jumping in the void. And that's the, the, the moment in which you cannot find the really, uh, why. <laughs> and it's kind of a, a collection of months, a collection of months that actually leads to the moment of starting the company. Uh, yeah, I was young. It was in 2018. So I was uh, 26. It's just been for two years and a half in uh, kind of a stable job. I was uh, kind of a baby, let's say, in the work market. And how did you go about founding co-founders? Did you have an idea of what type of co-founder would be the right co-founder? And sort of what made a good co-founder in your mind at the time? Yeah, me and Matteo, and we were in high school together. And we ended up being in Luxembourg together. I mean, working, he was working in UI. I was working for, a, for an investment fund. Both bored about our jobs. We're kind of boring. So we had a lot of time to think, a lot of time in front of beers to actually wonder about what interesting things we could do, what interesting ideas. So after speaking a lot about it. So the first co-founder, it was not really, again, a decision. It was kind of a happening. You know, it happened. The third co-founder is that Greg. We were desperately looking for somebody with knowledge, experience in, in IT. At the end of the day, we are fintech. We knew we, that we needed somebody with expertise in coding that was very far away from our skill sets. So we, we ended up, you know, knocking on the doors of all the incubators, accelerate, accelerators and team building moments here in Luxembourg, actually saying, Hey, do you have another young person who's actually very enthusiastic about new things and interested in? joining a new enterprise, uh, joining music and finance. And uh, that's where we met Greg. And how many people are in the company right now, other than the three of you? Right now, we are a team of between 30 and 40 people. So we are 30, 35. And uh, we try to be kind of flexible. So we have here in Luxembourg, a full-time play people of 11. And then the rest is scattered, let's say, around Europe. Somebody who's also in the US. And how did you, you know, you, so you have your friend, Matteo, you're starting the business and how did you decide on what the roles would be? Cause you're the CEO and what is, what role does Matteo play and how did you decide to divide the roles? Yeah, actually it came, it came by itself somehow. At the beginning it was because Matteo left uh, EY before I left my job. So Matteo was, at the beginning he was CEO and he was taking care of everything. You know, can you imagine? The beginning of trying to start a company, trying to convince people that you're really motivating in what you're doing and you really want to start a company joining music and finance it was very complex for him. So he was a CEO, he was going to all the events, he was making sure that we could get you know, to that specific incubation program, that all the stakeholders that we needed. And after the three of us, we left our jobs, we decided that I would become more kind of the CEO for, I don't know, kind of a more probably outgoing personality. Matteo is very precise. Uh, he's also very good representative. I mean, from this point of view, he, he's a perfect chairman, you know, like a person, very serious, very, always very well posed. But to be the CEO, I think you need to have a little bit of sometimes madness or, <laughs> which probably also characterizes me. So this is why I use that, 
that's the decision. So it's interesting because you're already starting to articulate what you think makes a good CEO and, and probably what type of CEO you want to be. So if you think about what type of CEO you want to be, how would you describe that? <laughs> well, CEO I would like to be, of course, a successful one, which is a term that actually encompasses a lot of I mean, what defines success? Of course, success is uh, for sure the company that you are you're engaging with, you're trying to lead actually to fulfill its goals, to continue advancing, to behind, despite adversity is always being there. I mean, it's also kind of taking the blame for whatever goes wrong. That's also one of the responsibilities and one of the problems of being a CEO is that you're always in the middle, whatever the problem might be an internal problem marketing and the, and the IT team, they don't get along well. You need to be there in the middle, also with external investors. Uh, also, you want to be a good leader for the people. I mean, you want to go give good indications. You want to be everywhere, also there, kind of not only micromanagement, but always ready to somehow also understand maybe what are the problems of the IT department. Uh, not maybe to the line of the specific line of code, but kind of having kind of being able to have a say, you know, also something on that probably you didn't study. And always being very passionate, always looking forward, always trying to do. I mean, it's it's complex. Basically, you need to be <laughs> everywhere <laughs> somehow. And uh, that's something complex, definitely. If you think about the biggest two or three lessons about leading that you've learned in this first few years, going from two friends in front of a beer to running a company of 30, 40 people in a very visible industry. Mm -hmm. It's for sure it's perseverance, one thing. I mean, whatever it takes is a kind of draggy situation, right? So you need to keep pushing. You need to keep pushing with investors. You're going to have a lot of no's, a lot of people saying, no, I don't understand. No, I don't, I don't trust. No, you're too young. No, you're not expert. No, you don't come from the music business. No, I don't like whatever. You need to keep pushing. You need to keep asking. You need to keep. And then sooner or later, you will find open doors. Or maybe people at the beginning said no, then sooner or later... So it's kind of this kind of, it's, it's not resilience, it's kind of perseverance, I think is one of the most important traits of whoever is trying to run a company, to build a company. It's, it's keep going, keep going. And yeah, other lessons, I think it's be an expert. You need to keep being informed, you need to keep learning, you need to keep spending time on what you do. I, I always think about the book of uh, Outliers, of uh, Malcolm Gladwell, where he was saying you need to you need to spend kind of 10,000 hours on something and then you can call yourself an expert and you will be market leader on whatever you do. Starting from, it takes examples of the Leap Beatles and so on and so forth. Be the first one to arrive in the office, be the last one to leave. I mean, unfortunately, the lesson that I learned is that you need to forget about holidays for kind of some time. Really love what you do. Don't go and burn out because, you, I mean, if you love what you do, you probably not, will not go and burn out, but you need to spend a lot of time in this to learn, to be the expert in order to maybe some criticism that you receive from some investors or maybe you're doing a pitch, you need to be able to answer any question. Watching television, I mean, you, you go to a talk show, you go to Bloomberg TV, you know, as a fund manager or something, you see them answering any question. This is something that I learned to do also in the past and then trying to replicate also this in, in the company that uh, I'm, I'm leading. You've built a team. What are the qualities that you look for the people that are coming into your team? Hmm. <laughs> Usually we use the, always the same rule, which is we need to be able to have a beer together and actually get along. But that's not true. 
that's not true at all. I mean, we, we had people also, and we, we have people that with which we don't have a lot of years together. We have different kind of mentalities, different passions, and still we get along very well. At the end of the day, I think that the most important is work ethics. Work ethics, being honest to yourself. I mean, if you don't know what to do, it's like, and I think that it's pretty easy to identify this kind of people, people that are not, don't have a good work ethic or somebody that you would not be. Of course, you need to do your research, maybe speaking with somebody that has worked with this person. How would you handle this kind of thing? And then, you know, sometimes you find a star, sometimes you don't find a star. But again, getting along, persevering with the same, you know, like whatever happens, I think that if you have people that are passionate about this and have good work ethics, uh, you will create, you will create a perfect team. Even if maybe you don't have the ex Google or the ex, I know, I don't know, ex Sony uh, from our industry in the team, you will still make it. So I, I want to talk about, you know, you mentioned Google and Sony as companies in the industry. So I want to just for a second. Give a quick explanation to our listener who may not be expert in the music bin industry, or you know, what does Anode do, and um, and then we'll talk about sort of like the goals that you have set for the company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, we define ourselves as the where Bloomberg meets Spotify. So we created a trading platform for buying and selling music catalogs. I don't know if you heard that there are a lot of big artists that are. That start in the last years, you know, all of a sudden to sell their music catalogs, which, which is at the end of the day, the intellectual property of the famous songs they produced to big investment funds from Shakira, Bob Dylan. So what we're doing is that we are bringing this market and we are also giving opportunity to small, smaller artists, smaller record labels, smaller publishers to somehow have the same opportunities in terms of monetization that big artists have. So. We are basically applying the logic of market, of the free market to music catalogs, which is the market of music, which is very capital intensive, so an injection of liquidity, the opportunity of monetizing a portion of the intellectual property and selling it to investors is a great opportunity, very appreciated by many players in the music industry. And we are doing this in a fun way, in the B2C way. So we are not connecting with the investment funds. We are not connecting with big record labels, but we're connecting it, you know, with the music and music owners with uh, the man of the street, let's say. So the fan, the retail investor, we are fractionalizing ownership of music rights, basically. So basically, I think you were going to say that exactly, but basically, if I am a fan of artist X, who is not necessarily like the biggest artist in the world, but it is an artist that has a catalog that is generating money. I can own a little bit of the future revenue stream of their catalog by reaching your marketplace. And at the same time, the artist can access all their fans to get funds that help them, you know, support touring costs, support production of the new records, etc. A hundred percent. Yeah, we don't yet work with emerging artists. Emerging artists is more complex because you don't have a track record on which you can base evaluation of the music catalog on. But we work with catalogs that have kind of reached closer to the maturity phase, so three to five years old songs. And when you reach the maturity phase, you are somehow by, by some investors considered to be a kind of a cash cow because you generate some kind of flow. I mean, a floor, let's say, of royalties that keep repeating every year. I don't know if you have 100,000 and 1 million, 5 million a month releasing on Spotify, this is numbers huh? of, uh, of royalties or dollars, euros, or whatever is your best currency. And so what is interesting to me is that in this situation, you are 
going into this market with not one, but two strikes against you. Because I've worked and had to do with the music business. So not only you don't have any experience in the music business and you're young, and second, you're a finance person, which <laughs> when you start talking to, to the music business, like, oh, you know, the music industry, and some for good reason, is an industry that has a very eradicated belief that you do not understand the industry I've been you've, until you've been in it for a really long time. And there's a certain portion of that that are true. But at the same time, to break in as a double outsider, because I think that, you know, business people who try to break into the industry without prior industry expertise are looked at double suspiciously. So how did you start gaining the trust and, you know, start making progress in this industry? <laughs> the thing is that you got to use your disadvantages at your own advantage. The fact that I was young, yeah, of course, lack of track record, lack of anything that could be considered as trustworthy, that's like, except for a good university background and probably kind of being an expert in financial modeling. But the problem is that I couldn't go in front of people saying, hey, here is my Excel. It's perfect. Uh, what do you think about A-Note music? No, but I mean, the thing, uh, for example, being young, being young, if the moment that you go, I mean, that we were going in 2017, speaking with kind of former executives, current executives with uh, 20, 30, 40 years of experience in the music business, uh, they were looking at us kind of as, oh, look at these cute guys. Look at what they're trying to do. Let's give them a hand. Let's give them a hand. So we kind of got a lot of knowledge, a lot of information that asking, hey, do you know anybody that we could actually speak to? Because we are very interested in getting to know more. At the beginning, we really knew nothing about music business. I mean, we didn't know the difference between master rights and publishing rights. We didn't know why an artist basically, yeah, basically from my point of view, the music business was composed of one player, the artist. Oh, yeah, maybe there are record labels, but I didn't know why. So slowly speaking with people that had been in the business for so long and they had kind of free time, always being gentle, always being, hey, I'm here to learn. I'm here to try to innovate. I know that you are coming also and understanding also the psychological point of view. The music business, the moment that we approached it, uh, was coming out of a bearish territory. I mean, a bearish, it's like a downturn, you know, no growth for 15, 16 years. So it was a market in which there had no been no generational change. You know, like the same people that were there 20 years ago as executives that were still there 20 years afterwards. So everybody was kind of pessimist. Everybody was, okay, yeah, guys, I mean, whatever. You want to innovate? I mean, yeah, try it. I've been here for 16 years. I've been trying. The, the, the news is doomed. So we gathered a lot of information. We kind of got friends with, you know, the relevant people, of course, not our age. And slowly but slowly becoming, again, the concept of expert, the concept of understanding, the concept of always being one step in front. At least you need to be able to express what you do and to know the industry. Then that's the moment in which we had a good proposition for actually going to record level A, record level B, publisher A, publisher B, artist, songwriter, and actually propose something that could be perceived as valuable because we had got all the knowledge from the patriarchs of the business. Were there moments like, you know, in this sort of exploration growth phase, what were the like the two or three moments where if I thought, oh, this was a significant progress, like, you know, this is one more step that we climb towards being a viable business yeah it was the moment in which we actually find the first potential yes to a potential sale of a potential capital on our platform 
you know, after speaking with, I don't know, having kind of our internal CRM that was kind of an Excel file with names and surnames and when we met the person and what this person was doing of, I don't know, 70, 80 entries, all of them met by one by one. We actually found a record label, a publisher that actually called us after speaking with, with me, I don't know, for, for five or six times. And I said, yeah, actually, I think maybe, maybe it could be something interesting to do. Because at the end of the day, the proposition of monetizing 10% of your catalog, receiving funds right now, and then reinvesting them in your catalog itself is a good proposition. So that's the moment in which we said, oh, yes, yes, <laughs> that's good. Actually, somebody sees that this is a good opportunity. That was kind of the first catalyst for us. I, I remember when I was, it was in September. September of last year? No, 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 a few years ago, three or four years ago. I just remember September, right? I mean, I stopped counting years. <laughs> <laughs> and how many artists are on your uh, marketplace right now, roughly? I mean, right now we have, the point is that each catalog contains many artists, right? Okay. So, I mean, we have a catalog that contains 100,000 songs. We have a catalog that contains only, I mean, 200 songs. So it really depends. But what we have done is that we have catalogs, what, is, what has always been very important for us. There is another point that probably we didn't touch before. Yeah, young from finance, and then from Luxembourg. What does Luxembourg have to do with the music business? First of all, why we were in Luxembourg? Because we were already working there. So already a third problem, geographical, which is huge. I mean, convince a company, a record label in Italy or in France to actually sell something from Luxembourg, impossible. So the first thing that we did was to kind of diversify geographically speaking. So we couldn't get the first client only from, for example, Italy. Otherwise, we would have looked like kind of the Italians that moved to Luxembourg for tax reasons, creating a company in Luxembourg. We couldn't have the first one only from France. So we tried to, at the beginning, already have catalogs from two different countries, Poland and Italy. And then the third one was from France. So there are a lot of kind of also strategies in order to remove kind of biases of investors, of potential clients, of potential investors in, the, in catalogs from the equation. And so you also had to overcome like two different sides of because your your role is entails a lot of education on all sides. What are some of the key barriers and and how are you overcoming them with actually the investors, the individual consumers? Yeah, the point was indeed probably transmitting all this knowledge, all this understanding of the business, of the financial and how the financial side deals with the music industry, how to look at music from a financial point of view and transmit this to the general public, to potential clients. And we have pivoted a lot our approach, a lot of times our approach. At the beginning, we thought we, we needed to have kind of a platform, a product which is very financial oriented, very like Bloomberg, dark. Um, then we understood that with this, we were losing all the fun side, all the music side. So we had to, we went to the music part and then we lost kind of the, so yeah, it's a, a process of trial and error of not being afraid of redoing everything from scratch or redoing the processes. And again, also here, it's kind of, there is not a specific kind of way to do it, but it's trial and error again. It's uh, until you find a product, which is kind of, or an approach, which is clean enough and that probably 50% plus one of the people that you're in front, in front of you would understand. And as a CEO, when you, you mentioned there's moments where you had to rethink the whole approach, how are some of the challenges that you face when you're like, okay, we need to turn 180 degrees here, and how do you communicate them to your team? 
I mean, fortunately, we have from day one convinced about the approach of creating a marketplace of music rights. And we are still after four or five years still in the marketplace for music rights territory. Then, of course, there are minor decisions, minor approaches that we changed drastically. But the most important challenges was at the beginning, not finding clients. I mean, finding maybe the first three catalog owners interested. And then you read on the newspapers that, uh, who was it? I don't know. Again, like Bob Dylan, let me give an example. Sold his catalog to hypnosis for $50 million, euros or whatever. And then you start to see, oh, there's a, the big financial markets are coming in. I have a huge opportunity here, but I also have a huge competitors. I have big investment funds are coming to actually not use my platform to purchase music rights. So you need to cope with this. You need to cope with rising competition and actually keep, you know, being in front of the team saying, hey, guys, no matter what, we will make it. Sooner or later, also, these big juggernauts will be using our platform because we are providing a liquid market. So. It's facing kind of constant constant uncertainty, bigger money, bigger competitors that come and go. Some of them have also gone and keep going. Right, because I know this from conversation with it before. One of the advantages that your platform offers is that people don't need to give up their whole catalog, right? So maybe one of these funds that has bought Bruce Springsteen's catalog for half a billion dollars or whatever the number is could say, well, I'm going to sell the streaming rights to this for you know 10 years on the platform so i can make some of that monetization back exactly exactly that's approach of course right now we are too small for a uh, bruce springsteen sh- share of the pie i consider that we have uh, fourteen thousand people on the platform investors on the platform I mean, it's it's growing we're growing double digit triple digital whatever but it's uh, the, the big jump it will be happening at the end of 22 but after a capital raise but we already proved this model with the first kind of fund, a company from Canada called MRI, which purchased a set of catalogs here and there, and they list their generic catalog, you know, the total, the catalog made of the sub-catalogs that I had purchased. And we listed their catalog, it's going very well, super diversified, it contains amazing songs. And so we have, we are validating also this approach and it's going very well. That's great. That is fantastic. So if you think about from a personal level for 10 years from now, what success, what would success look like to you personally? Probably looking back and being proud because the problem is that like life is a never ending story of never being happy, right? Always trying to chase something more. I was actually looking at the, (laughs) it's very interesting, the Netflix documentary on Elon Musk. Of course, there are many. And at the beginning, you know, they say, they say, okay, he created PayPal, then he sold it for 150 million. He was 26, 28 or something. Why did he reinvest everything into creating a space company to go to Mars? It was so risky. Why did he keep something for himself or Tesla, you know, like, and actually bought a house at the Bahamas or a house here or there or whatever, kind of the risking a little bit? Because probably he was, you know, like, always trying to have more, always trying to have more. This is something that if I have to advise myself over the future, I would try to avoid advising me to do this. I mean, sooner or later, something I would like to have is kind of being happy with what I have, not falling into the Icarus story of trying to close to the sun, being happy, continue doing what drives you and so on and so forth, but try to buy a house somewhere that pleases you and try to stay there for three months without doing nothing for I don't know, for quite some time. <laughs> like, that's kind of an advice I would try to give myself. 
So if somebody, if you were right now actually talking to somebody who's thinking about starting their own business and they're early on in their career, what are the two or three things that they should think about? Yeah, first of all, have a lot of patience. Have a lot of patience. You will need patience with your investors. You will have patience with your clients. You will need to have patience with the team. The team is one of the most complex things to, to, to actually manage, especially when you're young. You, don't, you have no clue how to manage people. It's very, very complex, especially because you think that everybody's in line, has the same approach, but it's not. Everybody has a different mentality. So really make sure to, to surround yourself with people that understand you and that you need to understand them. So patience, inwards and outwards. And then try to have something solid. Don't go with the first trend of, I want to create an NFT thing that doesn't have nothing behind. Sooner or later, I mean, if you have something solid, you will succeed. If you don't have something solid, you will not. So make sure to have concept of underlying and underlying business. Validate your ideas, validate your approach, use financial modeling. That's really something that really determines us in a binary way whether something is successful or not. Then, of course, you have the constellation of other things to take care of. That's great. So if somebody who is listening now is like, okay, I want to invest a little bit into a catalog, how does that work? How does the investment in a catalog work? How does the return work for, for the individual fan who's coming to your marketplace? Yeah, well, actually, the process is very simple. So whoever is paying the royalties for the catalog from this moment on is transferring a portion of these royalties to you as an investor. So in order to make this happen, of course, there is a huge product team behind, a huge marketing team behind, a huge level of connections that you need to make sure with that are withstanding time. But at the end of the day, you come on a platform, you log in, you, you sign the catalog that you're interested in too, you purchase a share of it. And then from that moment onwards, either on a semi-annual basis or a quarterly basis, depending on the frequency with which the royalties of the catalog are distributed by the underlying royalty distributor, you will receive the royalties. Sometimes this underli the, the underlying royalty distributor, the distribution phase of music, uh, music royalties is the most intriguing one on which we just plug and play. So let's say that, I mean, the catalog is generating royalties from Spotify. Then, of course, you need to have connection. We need to have the connection with whoever is collecting the royalties from Spotify. And before us, was paying the artist. We need to make sure that from this moment, from this moment on, is either paying us or is paying a portion of these royalties to us. And then we distribute, of course, with blockchain to the wallets of the investors. Yeah, and you just mentioned the word blockchain. I think the underlying structure of your system is blockchain. The concept of underlying structure can be very, very broad and can yes. be sometimes be also inefficient. Yeah, so because I think what's really interesting about your company is that the majority of the world right now, when they hear the word blockchain, they think crypto or, as you mentioned, NFTs, etc. But blockchain is a lot more than that as an enabling technology. And so... I don't know if you feel up to the task of explaining in a in a simple way, like what it does and why it's a great technology to do what you are doing. Let me try to take kind of an historical approach here. So when we started 2017, 2018, it was the year after the big crash in the ICO markets. You know, before that, everybody was into blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. Everybody was buying crap, ICOs, coins of companies that were basically based on nothing. Big crash of 2017. 
So in 2018, when we started building the product, we said, okay, blockchain is useful as a database. For what other things is blockchain interesting for us? For raising funds? No, we already did it with equity fundraising. I mean, with our investors, you know that. For actually selling something to investors, to our clients? No, they're buying music catalogs. So we try to really divide what is important. So at the end of the day, we basically ended up using blockchain for very little, very, very little. This is why the concept of a company-based structure upon blockchain can be sometimes misleading. Of course, you can say informally, but formally speaking, we are a company based on back-end, front-end, and a database, a portion of which, of course, is connected with blockchain to make sure that if we go blackout because Amazon Web Service or whatever other server that we use doesn't work anymore, or if you want to make the information that we store independent from a note music because you don't trust a note music, you write it on blockchain. This is the very simple way in which we use blockchain to make sure that if you invest in a catalog, which is catalog of artists XYZ, this information is independent from Enote so that you can receive the royalties eventually in the wallets uh, that you that you prefer. That's great. All right. So let's go on to the personal side. I know you said that you know, you are basically spending all your breathing time <laughs> in the business right now. But do you have any interests or passions outside of work? And is there one that has informed you or helped you with your work? Yeah, I mean, I was really, really, really head on the desk for two, three years. Now I'm starting to breathe again. After, after kind of some time, you need to, you need to. So no, for sure. I mean, I love traveling. I love, I love traveling. I love keeping me myself informed. I used to love to go to the gym. Now it's a rare event, let's say. Yeah. I love clubbing as well. I really love clubbing. I love listening to music, going to hardcore clubs or, you know, like uh, pretty rare, rare in Luxembourg whenever I'm traveling. That's the first thing that I do. I make sure to come to come back home as late in the night as possible or in the morning. That's <laughs> something which is helping me, you know, like kind of also the stress and uh, meet people and I think it's important to be kind of authentic to yourself or to your early 20s also when you grow up somehow. That's great. And then there's a question that I ask everybody. Is there an expression in business that drives you crazy? One of those, you know, cliches. And what is it? I, I think, I mean, I was thinking about the concept of blockchain or NFTs, kind of technical terms that right now are really overused. You find trap words about NFTs everywhere, everywhere. But something that I really, I, I think is kind of a more, kind of a longer, I, I've seen this word coming, surfacing here and there for a longer time is the concept of work-life balance. Yeah. It's very complex to speak about this topic, right? But I really hate kind of demonizing work, demonizing life in one way or the other. And so you, this concept of balance that you need to find, you need to make sure that I mean, at the end of the day, my philosophy is that you, you need to make something work as a founder. You need to make something work as an employee. You need to make, sometimes really make, need to make something work, either your life or your, or your work. So sometimes, sorry for, can I use bad words? Fuck the balance. I mean, just go with what is necessary. Just do whatever it takes. Just go, I mean, be driven. And then, of course, there will come the moment in which you will find more balance or whatever, but it cannot become an obsession. I've seen instead some some very good you know people that could give a lot and that instead were no but at 6 p.m. for example I need to go home because I need to find something for myself I mean 
I think that elasticity, flexibility is something that at work and is very, very important as well as in your life. And so I mean, it's kind of controversial for sure. But yeah, it's, it's a word that I actually don't really like sometimes because it's, a, it's just a shield because behind something else, I think. That's actually a good answer. I do think that there's a lot of misunderstanding in terms of what work-life balance means at different places in your life. So I think, it, it, and not many people have the courage or the honesty to say, you know, maybe the way we're defining it is not correct. Okay, final question. I call it food for your body or food for your soul. You can choose, say, like, you know, if there's a recipe or a drink that you really love, or if there's something like a piece of music, a book, a piece of art, a movie, a play that really inspires you or that, you know, nourishes your soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I, I'm not that much into visual arts. I mean, by exclusion, I love cinema. So, the, I mean, no visual arts. I love cinema, but it's kind of hard to find the perfect movie that I would go with music for sure. And uh, really, something that I really do a lot of times, really a lot of times, when I also need to find back kind of the very complicated day, but I still have some tasks to do or whatever. Soundtracks. Soundtracks are the recipe for happiness. <laughs> I promise you. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, it's the moment that you're there and you need to stay focused and maybe after a work day, a long work day, or maybe even in the morning. But for whatever reason you can be focused, listen to the Gladiator soundtrack two hours or listen to Inception soundtrack, a repetition for 10 hours. I promise you, you will feel like the Gladiator, an Excel file, anything that you will need to do, you will find like a superhero. It's amazing. The way these soundtracks are built is for making people kind of feel emotions the moment that they look at a superhero movie or whatever. And then you repeat this while you are doing meaningless jobs in front of the computer. I really love whatever kind of soundtrack, uh, as long as it's uh, empowering, empowering one. That's great. Marzio, thank you so much for being a great guest. It was great having you. Thank you, Dino. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend who may enjoy it that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, please tell your friend and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so that you don't miss the episodes when they're released. And if you're listening on a platform like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods or Podchaser that allows reviews, please leave us a great rating and a review. As usual, stick around because at the end of the credits, I'm going to share a new song by Susan Cattaneo. To find out more about A-Note Music, you can go to the website, which is spelled A-N-O-T-E-M-U-S-I-C.com, so anotemusic.com. And at the bottom of the page, you can also find their social links. I believe investing right now, it's only allowed in the European Union and maybe some other countries, but definitely not in the US. However, if you're interested, there's an A-Note Music application in the Google Play Store and in the Apple Store. So you can look at there on your mobile devices. And then finally, you can find Marzio on LinkedIn at linkedin.com backslash in backslash Marzio Flavio Schena, which I'm going to spell out for you. It's spelled M-A-R-Z-I-O-F-L-A V-I-O-S-C-H-E-N-A. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four. So al4ep.com. And then you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, you can find me at 
at AL4EDP and the podcast as the Authentic Leadership for Everyday People page on Facebook. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And finally, here's a song by Susan Cattaneo. If you listened to our last episode, you heard us talk about her brief stint as a mainstream country artist. So this is one of the two songs that charted on the Music Row radio chart. It's a fun little ditty called Girls Night Out. Enjoy. Heating up the mac and cheese And Peter's stuck on page two A little Johnny's trigonometry It's just a one night a month When the women aren't around We're all downtown Cause it's girls night out Where we talk about love We talk about life Table loosens up with every glass of wine 